Our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Isaac Asimov once said, People who think they know everything are a great annoyance to those of us who do. Good day. Welcome to Christian Questions. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. You might say that ours is a long-term approach as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 19 years. I'm Jonathan, and that long-term different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue. Always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 988th broadcast, and we've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years. That's right, and we figured it was time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting, so here we are. And folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, website messages, Facebook, our chat board, and everything else. So let's get started. Jonathan, what's the question for today? This is an interesting question for today. It really is, Rick. The question is, did Jesus and the thief Go from the cross to paradise. And our theme text is found in Luke chapter 23, verses 42 and 43. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Okay, so did Jesus and the thief go from the cross to paradise? In the immensity and complexity of the book we call the Bible. There are some verses that have become somewhat famous. The Christmas text, good tidings of great joy to all people. The football stadium text, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The character of God text, very simply, God is love. Another text that is well known and deeply meaningful was spoken by Jesus to one of the thieves dying on the cross next to him. Jesus said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. This text shows us the power of God's love as expressed through the compassion of Jesus and his sacrifice, and it is truly inspirational in the hope that it portrays. Now, here is a simple and very legitimate question. What was Jesus saying to that thief? Was he pro- what was he promising and why was he promising it? As we find out by examining so many verses of Scripture, what seems to be said is not always what is really meant. So, the question, did Jesus really say what most Christians think he said there on the cross? And Jonathan, you know you're going to get you open up a can of worms when you ask a question like that. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. So we actually um, be, have brought in a special can of worms opener. To be with us tonight, Jonathan, who is with us? Well, we have uh, Wes Kramer with us. And Wes, good evening. How are you today? Uh, Good evening, uh, Rick and Jonathan. And first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this program. Much appreciated. So, Wes, you're welcome. We're glad to have you. Who are you? Where are you from? And just a quick little background on you. 
Okay, um, I uh, reside in the southwestern Pennsylvania area, so I'm quite a distance uh, from you and Jonathan. Uh, I've been privileged uh, to be a, a student of the Bible, a student of the scriptures for pretty much, I'd say much of my life, not all of it, but much of my life. Uh, and uh, over 30 years ago, I was elected pastor of our local congregation and have acted as a, a pastor to the local congregation uh, throughout that period of time. Also, I have been privileged to be invited to uh, speak uh, as a guest speaker at many uh, Christian conferences uh, throughout the United States, uh, Canada, and also Israel over the last uh, 30 plus years. So lots of opportunities to study uh, the Word of God. We don't do it because of um, any financial gain. Uh, it, it's a love of passion, just like with uh, you and, and uh, Jonathan. And, and, and that's actually how... Um we met you is through some of those guest speaking appearances at the Bible conferences, and I heard you give a, a, a talk on this very subject, and I was really impressed with it and asked you to join us on this. So, Jonathan, before we get started, we just want to remind our listeners that it's always our objective with each subject we choose to approach it in a biblical and very relevant and practical way. We search out the original context of the scriptures that we cite, we try to find their true meaning, and combine those scriptures with the pressing issues of our day to give you all something to really, really think about. So, so, Jonathan, let's go to the first verse that we're going to be talking about and thinking about, and then we're going to get Wes started in giving us the the step-by-step -step explanation of what Jesus really meant by what he said. So let's go to Luke 23, 39 to 43. And one of the malefactors, which were hung, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not, dost not thou fear God? seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Okay, so Wes, this is the scene of the crucifixion. The three are hanging on, on the crosses. What, what's happening in this interchange here? Uh, essentially what's happening is you have, as you said, you have uh, Jesus, you have uh, the thief or the criminal on, on each side, and uh, we have both criminals actually making a statement, as uh, Jonathan just read it there. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we, we take a look at when we look at these verses is uh, we, we hearken back to what uh, Jesus uh, said in his interchange with Pilate. You know, Pilate, uh, when Jesus was on trial in front of him, says, what is truth? Uh, and as though, you know, can anybody really know what truth is? Okay, actually, let's, let, let's verify that through, uh, through the scripture, and then I want to get back to that, because I think that's going to be an important place for us to start. So, Jonathan, John 18, 37 and 38, that's what, G, uh, what, what Wes was just talking about. Therefore Pilate said unto him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So, Wes, Jesus seems to be all about truth. He, he verifies what Pilate said, and, but, but Pilate is just questioning everything. So th there's a big difference in approach there, isn't there? 
There, there absolutely is. Uh, and of course, as you said, Jesus is really all about truth. You know, he is the truth. He was speaking the truth. He was speaking it accurately. Uh, and that's really what he was all about, uh, including his dialogue with the thief. Or with both thieves, actually. Yeah, and it's interesting because both thieves had a different take on things, and and, uh, Jesus does respond to one over the other. As I was going through your your preparatory notes, you you brought up a, a point that we need to spend some significant time on in terms of trying to understand what Jesus said. Because, you know, when you're reading text from not only a foreign language, but an ancient foreign language from thousands of years ago. Sometimes it's just hard to find what really is meant by the word spoken. And there's an interesting principle that you had talked about that I would like you to, to, to kind of bring up for our, our podcast audience and, and put in place. So Jonathan, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And Wes, I want you to take some time on this, just explaining the principle here. Okay. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Okay, so the, the last phrase there, Wes, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And again, we're asking the big question, did Jesus and the thief go from the cross to paradise? Because when you read those words, today shalt thou be with me in paradise, that seems to be the logical explanation and interpretation that many, many have. And we're actually going to challenge that explanation interpretation. So what does it mean to compare spiritual things with spiritual? Okay, that's an excellent question. And really, I think we're going to find that this this principle is absolutely vital and critical for us to be able to understand the topic that we're dealing with this evening Uh, or with any biblical topic, uh, for that matter. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual, I think if you break it down to its most fundamental component, we're really talking about topical Bible study. We're really talking about gathering various texts of Scripture that bear on a particular subject. Uh, One of the ways that this is done, uh, for example, or one of the tools that's used, Uh, would be with a concordance. Uh, You can take a word like kingdom or a word like atonement or, you know, any particular topic that you want to study, and a concordance helps you to collate or bring together and consider as a group uh, the Bible texts that are on that particular topic. You know, the Bible wasn't written like a novel. It It wasn't written so that you just start from and read from cover to cover and get the whole story. The Bible was written in such a way is that you have to put together the various texts of Scripture like you would put together a chain. You have to add this link. There might be one link in Isaiah, then another link, a related link in in Matthew, or another uh, related link in Leviticus. You have to kind of put these chains, these links together in order to know what the Bible really teaches. Okay, so then what you're saying is comparing spiritual with spiritual, you're saying you have to know how to find the other things that appropriately apply to what you're looking for, not just general reading, you know, verse by verse by verse by verse. Right, you have to search for it. Okay, okay, Jonathan, go ahead. 
Yes, I want to remind our listeners, Christian Questions is pleased to announce the opening of our new chat room on our website, available during our live broadcast. Simply go to ChristianQuestions.com and click Listen Live for the live audio and chat room. Chat with fellow listeners around the world, and we may even include your comments on air. Okay, so folks, you can do that right now. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and get involved in that chat room. It's something that's new, so we're just getting it started. We would really love for you to be involved in that. So, okay, so topical study, you're saying spiritual with spiritual. It's the only way to get the true meaning because the book, the Bible, is very, very, very complex. Okay, so let's, we're going to put that, that thought on the shelf and, and use it as a reference point. Let, let's begin to take this verse apart, this verse about, Verily I say to thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. There's four things that you suggest, Wes, that we need to, to focus on. So Jonathan, what's the first thing we need to focus on? We're going to go to a scripture, and then we're going to have Wes explain it to us. Circumstances. What are the circumstances surrounding the conversation? So now we touched on the circumstances a little bit, uh, Wes, but let's, let's get to um, some of the backstory of how Jesus ended up being where he was, because these are the important circumstances of this. Jesus was condemned to death on a charge of treason against the Roman government. John, let's read uh, John uh, 19.12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So, Wes, we'd like to hear Jesus' circumstances, the thieves' circumstances, and and how those circumstances play into this particular conversation. Okay, and that's a good point, Rick, because the, the circumstances are one of the ways that we are beginning to put this uh, link, uh, this chain link together, uh, if you will. The circumstances here, I think the, the predominant ones that we want to note are the fact that the Jewish leadership uh, hated Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him. He was a thorn in their side, and uh, they tried for quite a while to, to eliminate him, uh, but at that time, apparently, the Jewish people, uh, the Jewish nation, their, the, the government that they were permitted to have by the Roman government, uh, was not allowed to uh, impose capital punishment themselves. So they kind of had to rely on the Roman Empire, the Roman government, uh, government in this case, uh, Pilate, who was the local governor. They had to kind of appeal to him. So what they wanted to do was to show that because Jesus said that he was going to be a king and he would have a kingdom, they wanted to use that uh, as a charge in front of Pilate uh, because their idea was to have Jesus tried and convicted on the uh, charge of treason, which was punishable by death. So this was what they, and they actually accomplished that, as we know, through a somewhat reluctant Pilate, but nevertheless, he still signed off. Uh, on that, uh, which uh, sealed uh, Jesus' death warrant. Okay, so those are the the circumstances of Jesus. What about these two thieves? I know we don't know a lot about them, but just put it all together into one package in terms of circumstances. Well, the thieves, uh, as as we uh, as Jonathan read earlier in that scripture, the one thief was not, uh, you know, he was rather rude, arrogant, uh, you know, very different attitude. The second thief seemed like he was more contrite perhaps had a change of heart. At least that's the impression that we get uh, from the scriptures. And this is the one to whom Jesus was really 
engaged in this very, very brief dialogue was, was, was with the more contrite thief. Yeah, now, that's an interesting point, because you think about it, I mean, the death by crucifixion is a torturous, torturous way to, to die. And, you know, you, you hear about the thief who's got the, the, the bad attitude, and you think, well, can you blame him? <laughs> you know, he's in this incredible pain, he's been caught for his crimes, and he is being executed as a result. The remarkable thing to me is the attitude of that other thief who seems to, I don't know, somehow be able to rise above his immediate circumstances because he sees something different in Jesus. He did. Actually, he saw something very different. He says, you know, it's interesting, and he says uh, to the, he kind of rails on the first thief, who right. is rather disrespectful, and he says, you know, look, uh, we were rightly condemned. We're rightly dying for our crimes. But this man, referring to Jesus, he didn't do anything wrong. Right. He is innocent. Uh, and, and Rick, you're absolutely right. Uh, that's a remarkable comment for a someone who's on death row and is only going to live for, you know, another, what, hour, maybe two hours, whatever it was. Right. Uh, and for him to actually be very complimentary uh, of Jesus and, uh, you know, what he stood for, his innocence, so on, to me, is nothing short of remarkable. So, and that's really the basis of us getting this whole thing started and underway. So, you know, this is an interesting comparison to see these thieves react to the consequences of their own actions. It is, and it makes you think. One thief respectfully asked Jesus for future favor. Do we know what Jesus thought of the request? We're uncovering the truth scripture by scripture while gathering information from across today's media landscape with our vast CQ team of contributors. We want to hear from you, our listeners, for more contribution to our conversations. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or message us through the Christian Questions app and our producers may read your comments over the air. Let's continue working through our topic with all our tools. We're reviewing the evidence. Now let's put it together. You know, understanding what the thief was really asking is such an important foundation for this conversation because we know that Jesus, in spite of his own pain and suffering, would have listened carefully and known what was in the man's heart. Jesus' response begins with a really important word, one that he spoke a lot throughout his ministry, yet one that we almost never take the time to focus on. And that's really where we're going to focus our thoughts and, 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 and study here, if you will, uh, right now. But again, Jonathan, let's go back to that main verse that we're going to just keep working on because we want to understand what Jesus really meant. And that's Luke twenty-three forty-three. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. All right, and Jonathan, before we go a little bit further with uh, with uh, our guest, special guest Wes Kramer here, um, let's just take a take a quick moment and look at our social media outlets that we have for folks to uh, kind of find out about who we are and what we're all about. Good, good idea, Rick. Um, be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us both on Instagram and Twitter. We have lots of exciting things happening, including, Rick, Trivia Tuesday featuring a not very well-known fact about the Bible. That's kind of fun. We've also got Thankful Thursday. Uh, has a different post each week about something that we are thankful for, and we look forward to hearing from you about what you might be most thankful for. 
And to top it off, Rick, we have flashback Friday highlights of previous Christian Questions programs from the archives that you may have missed. So again, folks, we are all over social media. Get involved in the conversation with us. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, so having said all of that, Wes, let's get down to this scripture. I mentioned that there's this one word that Jesus spoke often in his ministry, but we almost never take the time to define it. And it's really, really important. So Jonathan, what was the first of the four circumstances that, or four things that we needed to be focusing on? Sure, Rick. Uh, that was circumstances. What are the circumstances surrounding the conversation? So we looked at the circumstances of how Jesus got to where he was, how the thieves got to where they were, and the incredible pain and suffering all three of them were undergoing. What's the second of the four things we need to focus on? Verily. Other translations say truly, assuredly, or indeed. What is the significance of verily? All right. So, Wes, that's the question. Uh, what is the significance of that word, verily? Before we get into some other scriptures, just give us a sense of that particular word. Okay, the word uh, verily actually is, in this particular instance, it's translated from the word amen, A-M-E-N, which is a very common word. Uh, I'd say most of the people in the world have heard of this word amen, uh, and it's something that you typically hear after someone has offered a prayer, that uh, others, uh, members of the congregation, whoever, they will sort of join in and say, Amen. Okay, so when, 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 somebody, says, when somebody says, Amen, what does, that, what, what does that actually mean? When you're saying Amen to a prayer, what are you, what are you saying? I'm glad it's well, over or what? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe sometimes that's what some might mean. But uh, I think the, the, uh, the root meaning of that is that they agree with uh, what was said. They join in. They support uh, what was said that has already been said. And now it, that what was said, the prayer has come to a conclusion. They say, amen. In other words, I join in. I support what was said. Amen. Got amen. it. Amen. <laughs> okay, so let, let's go to a, a scripture then, and let's take a look at at how this is used and what does it mean? Because Jesus says this word a lot in his ministry, and it's a very interesting application here. So uh, let's go to the Apostle Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. And once we get through this verse, uh, Wes, I'm just going to ask you what the Apostle Paul is teaching us about verily, or amen, as you say. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say, Amen, at all of giving thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? All right, you got some explaining to do, Wes. What, 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 <laughs> what's, what, is, what is being said here? What's being taught by the Apostle Paul? Well, I think, first of all, Paul is teaching that it's entirely appropriate, as we do, as, as is very customary, uh, especially in Christian congregations, that at the conclusion of a prayer, uh, that uh, the congregation would actually say, Amen. So, he's, first of all, he's saying that's very appropriate to do that. But I think there's something else that he's also telling us here, and that is, uh, you know, that that those who say amen can only rightfully do so if they really understand what it is that was said that they are saying amen to. 
Uh, and I think that's critical. So you're not going to say amen to something that you didn't understand. That would not be an appropriate use of that word. So amen is sort of preceded by the idea of understanding. All right. And, and it's strange that sound that keeps coming up. <laughs> All right. So I want to I want to work on that thought just for another minute here because I think it's su- such an important thing that you just brought out. So the idea of saying amen is you have truly entered into what you heard and can say in good conscience, I am in agreement with. That That's what you're saying, right? That, that's exactly right, right. I guess well summarized. So amen is much more than it's done or it's over with, you know, now the, 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 our session's over, we can get up and go home and have our Sunday dinner, you know, because that's what happens, you know, in so many churches. It is, I have entered into, I have paid attention to and entered into the words that have been spoken so that I can, I, I am, I am, I, I'm joined with those words. That's a good way to put it. You think, kind of. The, you, I think it's an yeah. I think it's an excellent way to put it, Rick. Yes. Okay. All right. So now here's the question, because this is kind of odd. So if "amen" is used to ascribe assent, as you have just said, okay, to to what's already been said, then why does Jesus use that word at the beginning? Of his own words, there was no prayer before what Jesus said. What? Where's this word coming from? What's the meaning of that use? Well, I think in that situation, this is again where we have to begin comparing spiritual things with spiritual to try to get even a deeper sense of this word "amen." And I might mention one thing: "amen" is left untranslated about half the time that it's used throughout the entire Bible. Uh, So, in other words, if you're looking at the Old Testament, which is written uh, in Hebrew, uh, you have the word amen left untranslated. In in the New Testament, which is Greek, you have the word amen left untranslated. And we in English, of course, say amen. So, this word is very universally used. And I think we have to kind of begin to compare more spiritual things with spiritual in order to kind of dig a little bit deeper into the meaning of this word, amen, and why Jesus used it at the beginning of his remarks. Right, right. Okay, so um, do you want to go to another scripture before you get to answering that question, or do you want to just... I was thinking that maybe we could uh, pick up with the Isaiah text okay. in 65.16. Okay, so Jonathan, let's go to Isaiah 65.16 and begin to build an answer to why Jesus uses this at the beginning of his comments, uh, and what does it mean? That he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from mine eyes. Well, I didn't hear any amen in there, so what, what's, what does that verse have to do with what we're talking about? <laughs> okay, good question, because it's a little bit uh, camouflaged here, we might say. Uh, we find in this Isaiah 65, 16, uh, a phrase that appears twice, God of truth. And again, God of truth. The word truth there, the English word truth, is translated from the word amen. Uh-huh. So in other words, if you look at the Hebrew, the Hebrew word that's that's translated there is the word amen. The, word, the exact word, the exact same word we've been talking about. Okay, so the word truth in Isaiah sixty five sixteen that appears twice, God of truth, you're saying, really is for purposes of understanding our conversation right now is the God of amen. 
Yes, exactly. The God of all men meaning God is inherently a God of truth. He's a God of accuracy. Uh, so I think the, the translation here of the word truth, the English word truth, I think is very, very accurate. And it goes, again, this, this level deeper of showing that when we use the word amen, uh, it's not just I join in and I agree with, but what was said is true. Okay, so now it's starting to make a little bit more sense. So the idea of amen, and, and again, in, in the King James Version, the word used is verily which is a word that you say, well, what does that even mean? And now it's not just that I join into the comments, but I see them as absolutely true. And this Isaiah 65, 16 says, it's the God of truth, the God of amen that we follow. So now we have to figure out, okay, what do we do with this scriptural principle of the God of Amen or the God of truth. So let's go to another text. Let's go to back to the New Testament. And, and again, the reason we're going through all of this is so that we can understand what Jesus said when he said, Verily I say to you, he's speaking to the thief, they're hanging on the cross, they are both dying. And he says, Verily, Amen, I say to you. Why does he say it that way? So let's go to this Hebrews 6, 17 and 18 and see if we can dig a little deeper about what to do with the scriptural principle of the God of Amen or the God of truth. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. All right, again, I didn't hear any amen in there, but uh, so Wes, how, how does this scripture fit in? Okay, well, the word amen, I don't believe is used in this text, but what this is, what this does by uh, through the Apostle Paul is to, uh, again, underscore the idea that our Heavenly Father, uh, our Creator, is a God of truth. It's impossible for him to lie. That is such strong language that, again, I think really underscores the importance when we talk about the God of all men or the God of truth. It really underscores uh, that this is 100% accurate, that God can speak no lie or even a half-truth. It's 100% truth. Okay, so the God of Amen is, is really saying that God is immutable, and that's one of the words in this verse, in, in terms of his, uh, of his truthfulness, he is made of truth. Okay, that's, that's all well and good, but the conversation, we have to, we have to get, we got to get it back to where we're going. Okay, so we've got the God of Amen, the God of truth. What about Jesus? Where does Jesus fit in relation to the God of truth or the God of Amen? Let's go to Revelation 3.14. And unto the church, angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. All right, now I saw Amen in this one. <laughs> and now I'm beginning, to, I think, to get where you're going with it. Go ahead, give us your explanation. Okay, and you're absolutely right, uh, Rick. Here it's, uh, it's plain. It's very, very plain. Again, the word Amen is what we call transliterated, which means it's not translated, it's simply left as the way it is. Uh, Jesus, interestingly enough here, labels himself as the Amen. So, and, he's, and he then proceeds to explain it. He says, I am the faithful and true witness. In other words, he speaks the truth. He speaks the word of God, he speaks it accurately. So again, it's still building and building and building on this idea 
that when we use the word amen, wherever we see it, we're talking about something that's 100% true, 100% accurate. All right. And, and, and in another verse, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, you know, you get a sense that Jesus is occupying this privileged position of being the personification of the truth of God's will. That I, I think it's very well said, Rick. Excellently said. Okay. All right. So, so let's sum up. We're, we're trying to figure out verily. When Jesus says, verily I say to thee, uh, um, to, to the thief, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. We spent, spent this whole segment on this one little word, verily, and we're trying to figure out what, what is it that Jesus, why did he put that before his statements rather than after? So Jesus was clearly supportive. So, so when we're looking at the thief's request then, Jesus speaks the word verily after the thief's request, Correct. That's right. That's exactly right. So what is that telling us? Well, I think what it's telling us in a nutshell is that the, the request that the thief made, which was very simple, and that is, you know, remember me in your kingdom. Uh, and what Jesus, I think, by starting the word verily, what he's saying to the thief is that I agree that what you just asked me for is a 100% proper request. It's a truthful request. I think it was, in, it was a sincere request, as I think as you pointed out, Rick, a few minutes ago, I think that Jesus, we know, could read the heart. Uh, and he could read the heart that apparently this thief, this contrite thief, uh, was uh, very sincere. And so I think Jesus is saying to him, uh, you've asked me to remember you in my kingdom, and that pre that request is a very proper one. So, so now, this is... This is you know, this is a real light bulb experience here because so when Jesus says, verily, I say to you, he's saying, I am in agreement with what you have asked me. And it was a truthful, proper and appropriate thing to ask me. And then Jesus gives his answer. So I never, ever would have thought that through in, in, in those terms, unless we had gone through this little discussion on what amen means and what verily means. So it really is, is a very enlightening way to look at this whole thing. So It, it certainly is. So, so th thank you for, for that specific, specific point, Wes, because it's such, a, it's such a building block for us to, to get through to see what Jesus really meant here. So he's verifying the request, and I think that's an incredible thing. Now, Jesus didn't always do that. Jesus wasn't always in agreement with everybody. And just a quick example of that before we close out this segment, Luke 12, 51. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you, nay, but rather division. So, Wes, that's not an amen there, is it? No, actually, Rick, here uh, we see that it's exactly the opposite. But I appreciate this example because it shows that if Jesus would have disagreed or, you know, with the thief, or if he would have, if the thief would have been making an improper request, uh, I think Jesus, instead of saying verily, he would have said nay, because here in the Luke uh, text that uh, Jonathan just read, uh, he uses that word nay, uh, and we understand that text while it's tangential to our discussion, he was saying essentially that my teachings are going to be controversial. Okay, and the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and Jesus in Revelation calls himself the Amen, he, what it means is he would always, no matter what happened, fulfill the will of God who cannot lie. 
So when Jesus gave that ascension, ascension to the to the thief, he really was doing something very, very powerful here. So the support that Jesus gives this thief is really, really remarkable. More than that, it is inspirational. The thief's request is good. Now the question, what does Jesus promise and when will it happen? We're uncovering the truth scripture by scripture while gathering information from across today's media landscape with our vast CQ team of contributors. We want to hear from you, our listeners, for more contribution to our conversations. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or message us through the Christian Questions app and our producers may read your comments over the air. Let's continue working through our topic with all our tools. We're reviewing the evidence. Now let's put it together. All right, so with an amen in place, Jesus now proceeds to support that amen with specific details, the next of which needs careful and honest study as well. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. There are two things here, today and then there's paradise. So let's start with today, which on the surface would seem to be somewhat simple depending on some punctuation, because I mean the word today I mean means today. I, I would think that today is just today and it's not yesterday, it's not tomorrow, so it's today. How about that, okay? <laughs> so, all right, so before we get back to Wes, Jonathan, uh, the, let's just sum up. The, there's four things we need to focus on. Just sum up the first two that we discussed. The first, circumstances. What are the circumstances surrounding the conversation? Okay, the Okay, and, and again, the circumstances, they're on the cross, they're in pain, and all three of them are dying, and yet there's this very cogent conversation happening. The second, verily. Other translations say truly, assuredly, indeed. What is the significance of verily? Okay, and verily means amen. It means to ascend to the to what has just been said to be in agreement with to see it as actual truth so when jesus says verily amen to what you just asked me i say to you today that brings us to the third point why did jesus focus on today wes was it to give this thief instant gratification like i say to you today here's what's going to happen is that what he was meaning no, I think as you pointed out, Rick, I, I think, you know, the thief knew that he was uh, speaking contemporaneously, uh, and uh, certainly Jesus knew that he was speaking contemporaneously, so I don't think he was using the word today uh, to somehow verify or underscore the fact that this was a live conversation, this was contemporaneous speech. That's not at all why he was using that word. He could have just as easily said, I say unto thee, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Just leave out the word today. I mean, it was obviously live conversation. Okay. So, that, so the word today is, does, not, does not refer to that point. It, it, it would be meaningless, as you, as you already pointed out. All right. Now, now, that is going to begin to create an issue with a typical understanding of this verse. Because today, in a lot of uh, interpretations is a really important pivot point for trying to get uh, uh, an understanding of what's being said here. So again, Jonathan, let's go back to the verse itself, and I know we keep repeating it, but we're spending a lot of time on this one verse because it is incredibly significant to find its true meaning. So again, Luke twenty-three forty-three, And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Okay, so that's the verse, amen, to what you said, 
I say to you today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. And, and Jonathan, before we go any further, let just, let's just take a moment, because this is a complex subject. Oh, it is, Rick. And um, the best way to really get it is to go to our website, christianquestions.com, and sign up for CQ Rewind, the full edition. It's full of graphics, illustrations, and it will really bring out these important points to really pull apart what the scripture is talking about. And it's a free service. You can opt out with the click of a button if you want to, but please try it out. If, if, you, if, you have, if you're listening through your app, you can, you can subscribe on your app or through christianquestions.com. Give it a try. Seek your rewind, the full edition. It is a great, great service. Okay, so Wes, let's get down to this. Today, what does Jesus mean when he says, I say to you today? Well, one of the things, Rick, that I think might be useful to uh, inject into our discussion is that while the Bible, we believe, is the inspired Word of God, uh, the punctuation has has been placed in there by the various translators of the Bible. And if you look at almost any translation of this text, uh, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, comma, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. It's almost always the comma is before the word today. But I think we have to remember, first of all, that the punctuation, wherever it is, uh, was really placed there by the translators of the scriptures. It was not placed there by the writers, and certainly not by the divine author, God himself, of the scriptures. Okay, so again, to, to, to translate what you just said about translations— the meaning of the verse will change significantly by the movement of that little comma. If you say, verily, I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. It sounds like you're saying, I say to you, here's what's going to happen today. The other way to put it from what you just said is to move the comma to after today. Verily, I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise. So there's two ways of looking at that just by punctuation. And so you can say, okay, well, you know, that's subjective to whatever you want it to be. But in looking at the study here, Wes, there's a whole lot more to it than just some arbitrary, well, it fits my desire to have it mean this, so we need to move the comma here or there. We want to see how this phrase fits into Jesus' overall teaching. Okay, and and just take a let's take a, a little bit of a left turn here because Jesus was the greatest communicator humanity had ever seen. And let, let's just let's just pause there for a minute, and then we're going to come back to this verse. John, uh, Jonathan, let's go to John chapter seven, verses forty-five to forty-seven. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, "Why did you not bring him?" The officers answered. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? So, Wes, in terms of Jesus' communication ability and so forth, what, what is this verse telling us? I think what it's telling us is that Jesus had a command of language that was second to none. And I think what we get, what we extract from that is while you and I might stumble over our words and, you know, we might, uh, you know, we might speak improperly or wait, imprecisely. Wait, 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 wait. Or... Me stumble over my words? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> that never <laughs> happens, right? Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's uh, 100% the right, really right to the point. 
is that Jesus, uh, honestly, he was, uh, he had such a precision of speech, a command of language. He didn't use, you know, five words when four words were all that was necessary to get the message across. He didn't speak excessively. He didn't speak imprecisely. Uh, you know, he didn't uh, have shortcomings when it came to that. So the point is that he used this word today for a very good reason. He just didn't throw it in because it just sort of rolled off the end of his tongue. Okay, so th- oh. that is an important aspect here, and we want to get to, and in, in your notes you said that there are two specific reasons that he used that word today in this comment. We're going to get to that in one moment, but right now we have an app comment. Uh, so Trish has brought that to us. Trish, you ready with that? Uh, she's almost ready. She's got that panic look in her eyes. Because <laughs> she didn't think I was going to ask her so soon. Right. Okay. We good? Um, yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, you got to lean lean in. All right. This is a, an app comment that somewhere in your discussion discussion um, you can maybe think about. This is says in Psalm twenty two, which prophetically record Jesus' thoughts on the cross. He showed similar um, confidence and assurance in the midst of such pain. He states the the surety of the blessing of all the families of the earth, including the the thief on the cross. And there's a quote, In all... All the ends of the earth will remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship um, before you. Uh, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations, Psalms uh, 22, 27, and 28. So I don't know if you're going to be including any of Psalm 22 in your comments, but I just thought I'd give you that. Okay, thank, thanks for that. Uh, it's, an important, it's an important aspect of things because, again, um, it, Psalm 22 does show you the mind of Jesus on the cross through the suffering and the assurances of why he was suffering. And that that's actually fits very well into what we're talking about here. So thanks for that comment, Trish. We appreciate it. Let's get to the reasons Jesus uses that word today because he's doing something specific. He's doing something dynamically for a very specific reason. So the first reason, well, Wes, what was the first reason that he used that particular word? Okay, I think the first reason that uh, Jesus used this word today in his reply to the thief is uh, to say to the thief, look, I know what this looks like. Uh, as, As the thief already knew, Jesus was preaching, had been preaching that he was a king and would have a kingdom. But here it is, Jesus has now been terribly disgraced by the Jewish leadership. He's been tried and convicted of a capital offense by the Roman government through Pontius Pilate. He's been crucified. He's hanging on this crucifix, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, It certainly doesn't look very promising as though he's going to be a king or have a kingdom because in a few hours, he's going to be dead. Uh, And so, I think that one of the reasons that he was saying to the thief and underscoring this idea of today is that he was saying, look, no matter what it looks like, no matter how bleak the circumstances are, I'm assuring you that I am a king. I am going to have kingdom. Okay, so what you're saying is Jesus is saying today it looks dark. It looks hopeless. I look helpless. But today is when I'm telling you this. 
because of the fact that it looks so bad. Am I getting there? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think what he was trying to do is, in and in maybe in a manner of speaking, he was saying to the thief, "Look, disregard what it looks like, you know, because if you look, if you just consider, you know, the fact that I'm hanging on a cross and I'm about to die, and that's the end of the story, uh, you're going to get a wrong impression here." So uh, he was saying to the thief, "Look, put those, put these outward circumstances aside, because that's not what you need to be focusing on. I can assure you, I am a king. I'm going to have a kingdom." Okay, and Jonathan, let's verify that through Jesus' own words to Pilate. Again, we touched on this earlier, but let's go back to it in a little bit larger context. John chapter 18, 36 and 37. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So, Wes, in that particular verse, he is very emphatically telling Pilate, Yes, I have a kingdom, it's not of this realm, and he seems completely un- unmoved by the potential uh, sentence he's, he's going to have before Pilate here. He's like, no, look, this is what's going to happen. Again, Jesus is the a- amen, all right? So I want to wrap this point up because we only have like five minutes left in this segment, and I've got to get to the second reason. So the first reason was that it was it, what looked like was happening, Jesus was saying, by saying, I say to you today, He's marking the day and saying, now listen to what I'm going to verify to you because even if it looks so bad, there's something so good that comes from this. What's the second reason, Wes, that Jesus uses that word today? Okay, the second reason, I think, is because there would be something that would be accomplished that day, that very day uh, that he was hanging on the cross that was really going to be something that would be very, very unique that would be uh, absolutely critical uh, to the salvation of mankind. All right, so something incredibly unique was happening that very day. So it's interesting because then when Jesus says, Amen, when he says, Verily, to the request of the thief who says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus is, is almost, it's almost like he's saying, I am so glad you said that because today is the day that that kingdom begins its 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 formation because I'm hanging here. That's is that. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, that that's absolutely right. And maybe just to kind of uh, dig into the details, just uh, very very briefly, um, we have in uh, Galatians chapter four verse four, which we won't take the time to read, but in that text, the apostle Paul tells us that. Uh, Jesus was born of a woman, an Israelite woman, and he was born under the law. So he was he was born into the old law covenant. This was a very uh, demanding uh, contractual arrangement that the nation of Israel had with God. And as we can read a lot about that back in Exodus 24 and the chapters uh, on both sides of that. And I think that's important because that covenant being virtually un- very unforgiving, uh, and it required absolute perfection. It required absolute 100% obedience, and that's what Jesus was subject to. He was under enormous stress uh, to be 
fully 100% obedient uh, to that covenant. So that was one of the reasons. And, and it, if he did not, if he died without having been 100% obedient to that covenant, it would have destroyed uh, mankind's opportunity for salvation. This was critical for Jesus to stay perfect the, his entire life, right up to his last breath. And, and so it's, om- it's almost as though the conversation with the thief could have even served as more, more of a, you know, inspiration to Jesus because this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here. You know, maybe it just gave him another another shot of that, that, you know, this is God. God is showing me again and again and again. Um, we don't have time to go through all these verses. Um, so you mentioned the stress of perfection that was required of him. The, the next point that, that I have down here is the exhaustion and rejection of the experience. And Jonathan, just quickly read Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So, Wes, that's, again, prophetically looking at Jesus on the cross, and he's looked at, well, like a common criminal, right? Exactly. And and I think, again, it was not only this huge burden that he was under to comply with uh, the old law covenant that he was born under, but he also had made a commitment at the time of his consecration, at the time of Jordan, at the time he was immersed, he actually made a commitment to give up his humanity, which again was a vital part of what it was going to take to create uh, an opportunity for salvation for the entire world of mankind. So you have him under sort of a dual covenant. He has to comply with the old law covenant. But he also has to comply with this commitment that he made to his heavenly father to give up his humanity I mean, and if that's not enough, you know, here he is, he's unpopular, He's he was abused, he went, you know, all night, or at least most of that night, if not all the night uh, previous, without sleep. Uh, you know, he was hated by the Jews. I mean, he was just under enormous distress at this point. So, to, to wrap this up, we're looking at this and seeing that when he says, I say to you today, he is accentuating the day of crucifixion as being the pivot point for all of human history. So Jesus needed to tell the thief about their crucifixion day as all future history would now begin to revolve around it. That's true. That day opened the door to humanity's future. Jesus, so far, had drawn attention to where and when they were. What about where they would go? Every episode, we cover a lot of ground. Part of gathering all the information and drawing conclusions is having a thorough conversation. Thanks to all our listeners for all your feedback every week. Rick and Jonathan want to hear more comments and questions. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com through all our social media channels and download our app by searching Christian Questions in your app store. Now, since we have puzzle pieces everywhere, let's put those pieces together. So here again, we have seen the depth, character, focus, and wisdom of Jesus as he truly does encourage this penitent thief before his death. Jesus' focus on the significance of that crucifixion day told the story of how paradise would become available. So before we define just what paradise is, we need just a few more words on this word today because... Wes, this word today is really pivotal because throughout most of Christianity, it's interpreted, I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
and we're saying no according to what you you've, you've been giving us to to work with i say to you today this day of crucifixion this dark day so again what did today not mean in this case well today didn't mean that jesus was going to go to his reward uh, it also did not have anything to do with whatever reward that the thief was going to uh, eventually attain to. He was, he was not talking about the reward at all that day. That's not why the word today was being used. It, what, the reason that the word today was being used is because this is the day that Jesus would complete this sacrifice that he had agreed to make that was absolutely critical for human salvation, including the salvation of the thief. Okay, so we want to understand that the, the, the today aspect is, I say to you, at this moment, because of the fulfillment of this sacrifice. So he's not talking about the future. He's talking about, I'm saying to you, here and now, because this is the moment. Let's go to Matthew 16, verse uh, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. So, Wes, when we read that verse, how does that fit into our conversation about today and, you know, the application of it? Well, I think it's a real anchor point, uh, Rick, because we not only have the, the text here in Matthew, we have many texts in the Bible where Jesus himself said that he would be killed and that he would rise not that day. He didn't rise the day that he was killed. He didn't rise until the third day. Most Christians believe that Jesus was crucified on Friday afternoon. He didn't rise from the dead until Sunday morning. So, you know, you can't use the word today to associate it or, con or connect it to Jesus' reward because he didn't receive his reward that day. So, you, you look at this word, I say to you today, and we really, folks, and again, pay, pay close attention here because this may be very different from the things that you've learned before. But think about it through, through, through the, uh, through the as in the aspect of, of putting the scriptures together so they harmonize. We have this one verse where you can, the word you can say, okay, I could take it this way or that way. But when we have other scriptures talking about him being raised on the third day, he didn't go to paradise while he was in the grave. As a matter of fact, let's go to another scripture on that. The Apostle Peter, speaking on the day of Pentecost, West essentially verifies what you just said, Acts chapter 2, verse 27. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Okay, so Wes, how, how does that help to build this argument? Okay, it very much helps because... Uh, Again, if we read that text very critically, it says that Jesus' soul was not left in Hades. Hades is uh, a Greek term that is really, it really means the, the death state. It's the state of being dead. It's the opposite of being alive, is what Hades means. Uh, the fact that Jesus' soul was not left in Hades means it had to be in Hades right. for some period of time. In other words, he, he, was, uh, he was asleep in death we might say, you know, for a period of time. Okay, so the idea of being asleep in death for a period of time confirms that, again, it can't be, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, because 
Jesus didn't go to paradise according to the, these other scriptures. Jonathan, go ahead. And that brings out the point that we talked about before, that God is the God of truth, the God of amen, Right. that even some Christians really don't believe Jesus actually died. But if the scriptures say he did and God's word can't lie, that also verifies that he actually was in that tomb parts of three days. So th this is, again, this might be a big mouthful to swallow if you're listening in saying, what are you guys talking about? And again, I want to remind you, CQ Rewind, the full edition is something that, you know, we're, we're saying some things and if you just hear it once and then you don't have anything to verify it with, you're not going to get the real conclusion. So CQ Rewind, the full edition, we ask you to, to, to uh, check it out, subscribe, it's a free service, get the scriptures, get the commentary all written out for you at the, at uh, christianquestions.com. So clear, today clearly did not mean that, it, that on the crucifixion day he was in paradise. That's, it's, that's not what it meant. Okay, so let, let's back up, Jonathan, for a second. There are the four things to focus on. We've covered three of them. What are those three? And I'm probably going to interrupt you. You know me. Circumstances. What are the circumstances surrounding the conversation? Okay, the circumstances. The three men are dying, and Jesus and this one thief have an incredibly meaningful and profound conversation in the process of dying. Verily. Other translations say truly, assuredly, or indeed. What is the significance of verily? The significance of verily is amen. It is I am in agreement with and believe what I heard to be true. So when the thief asks Jesus to be remembered, Jesus is saying, I am in agreement with your request, and it is a true, appropriate, and proper request to make of me. What's the third point? Why did Jesus focus on today? Was it to give instant gratification? No, it was to focus on the fact that that very day was the fulfillment of the sacrifice necessary to open the door to paradise. And that brings us to the fourth point, and what is that? What about paradise? Was Jesus promising the thief a place in heaven? Okay. So, Wes, now we've, got, we've gotten through a lot of the verse and trying to put it in perspective. What is Jesus promising this thief? Is he saying he can go to heaven? <laughs> well, I don't believe that he was promising the thief a heavenly reward. Um, I believe that what he was saying to the thief is that there would be a future paradise. The word paradise means garden. Uh, and that there would be a future paradise upon the earth, and that's what the thief would have the, have the privilege of experiencing in due time. Okay, all right. Now, now, hang on. Because, so you're saying that paradise means, is talking about a future paradise on earth. But let, let's, hang on. Let, let's go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, and let's hear your comments on that. Re Jonathan, Revelation 2, 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, Wes, when you look at that verse, it's talking to called-out Christians who are called to heaven, correct? Uh, that's right. As a matter of fact, this is just one of uh, seven instances when we're, when we're looking at the book of Revelation, we're looking at the seven stages or seven periods of the church, of the church, the, the Christian church. 
the true Christian church. And this is just one instance where uh, to him that overcometh, in other words, to him that fulfills the commitments that, that, that they have made to God, uh, they will experience the paradise of God. They will experience a heavenly reward. Okay. So now you you have the, the, the heavenly reward that you just said is the paradise of God, but you had just suggested that the paradise of God was an earthly reward. Did, how does how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the the way that that works is that we have to yet compare at least one more spiritual thing with spiritual things. So so far, you're right. Uh, I had suggested that the paradise in connection with the thief would be an earthly paradise, not a heavenly paradise. But yet, when we look at Revelation, we see that the paradise can also be used to refer to a heavenly reward. So, so, so apparently, I can't use Revelation two seven to support my point. <laughs> okay. So, but but see, that's part of the whole idea of trying to to compare spiritual things to spiritual things. What does the Bible say as a whole? And you can't just take one scripture and say, "Well, okay." you know, that blew it up. You've got to look at the at other context. So let's go to another text, and, and Wes, we can, we can build off of this next text, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 to 4. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Okay, Wes, what is the Apostle? The Apostle Paul's talking about a vision, but what is this vision? Just explain it and then put it into the context of our conversation. Okay, very well. Actually, Rick, I was going to tease you a little bit on that on that Revelation 2-7 text that you caught me red-handed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, the 2 Corinthians 12-4 gives us yet another perspective, a scriptural perspective for the conclusion that it was really an earthly paradise that Jesus was referring to relative to the thief and not a heavenly one. In this particular text, what we have, when I'm talking about 2 Corinthians 12-4 that Jonathan just read, uh, just a moment, just a moment here of background. I think uh, is necessary to kind of help us to understand or put this into context. Paul was under attack uh, from false brethren. They accused him of being a fake. They accused him of being a thief. They accused him of being not an apostle. They accused him of teaching error. Uh, and so, what was happening is that these false brethren were really undermining the um, the authority of the Apostle Paul to be a, a mouthpiece of God. And Paul real, realized he had to do something, not defend himself personally, but he realized he had to defend his apostleship because the, the sincere brethren were going to be relying, and they were relying on his apostleship, his teaching, his leadership ability uh, to know what it is that uh, was the message from God. So the point is that this was something that this vision uh, was part of the way that he was underscoring the fact that he was, in fact, an apostle. He was a legitimate apostle. He was a legitimate spokesperson or mouthpiece uh, of God. And so that's why that leads us into this this concept of the third heaven and paradise that he refers to. 
Okay, so when it says I was caught up into the third heaven into paradise, so you're suggesting that the third heaven and paradise are focusing on an earthly application of paradise, not one in heaven? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is correct. And uh, if we take a look at this idea of the uh, the third heaven, and uh, I don't know if you want to read the, um, I know we have another text or two that we could uh, jump to on that, uh, maybe even the, the Isaiah 65, 17, maybe we could okay. we go there. And yeah, on? you know, and, and we need to go there because what what's happening now is you're saying, okay, you're saying the third heaven isn't heaven. It's like, wait, 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 how can you say the third heaven isn't heaven, for goodness sakes? <laughs> because, <laughs> and again, folks, this is where you have to pay really close attention because the scriptures interpret themselves, but we just have to let them interpret themselves. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold... I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Okay, new heavens, new earth. What is that talking about? Okay, uh, if we look uh, in, in, again, we're kind of taking a global perspective of the Bible. The Bible teaches us that there are three different uh, worlds or three different heavens, if you will. And we're not talking about a place. When we're talking about a new heavens, here in Isaiah 65, it's talking about a new spiritual ruling control. It's a spiritual power that's going to control things on earth. Okay, okay, pa- pause there for a second. So okay. what you're saying is heavens is not up in heaven, but in fact spiritual power and control over earth having to do with earth. That's exactly right. It's, okay. it's, a, spiritual, it's a spiritual body that is governing uh, the affairs of earth. Okay. And we actually have a couple of examples of that. If you look at the first heaven, the first heaven was from man's creation until the flood. That was called, uh, Peter calls that the world that was, that, that uh, overflowed, it perished, it overflowed with water. That was the great Noahic flood. The, the second heaven is the heaven where it's the, uh, where Satan is actually permitted to have a limited degree of control over the affairs of earth for a fairly long period of time. This is, uh, you know, the the, uh, the apostles call this, uh, or call him the God of this world. Uh, it's called the present evil world because evil predominates. Uh, so again, that's the second heaven. But the one that Isaiah is talking about is this new heaven, this new government, and which is actually going to produce a new earth. It's going to produce a new structural, uh, a new societal structure uh, upon the earth. It's going to make this paradise that Jesus was referring to uh, in his dialogue with the thief. Okay, so uh, the idea of heaven then has to do with governing earth. So when you say the world that was being overflowed with water perished, the governing system that was 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 overflowed and perished. The, it, 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 right, that whole thing came to an end. Right. So, in the world, the Satan being the god of this world, the god of the, the 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 governor, if you will, of this world, because it's evil, that will also come to an end. That's exactly right. And not only just his governorship, but all of the horrible things that he has caused uh, to happen uh, upon this earth. They are also going to be done away with. All right. So, so then. Uh, when when we look at the third heaven, now here's the thing that that's to me. If we can get it this way, it, it makes more sense. The third heaven isn't going up, up floors. You know, second floor, third floor of heaven, please. You know, it is going forward, not up, 
forward. It's in time. The first heaven was the world that was. The second heaven is the world that is. The third heaven is just simply moving forward in time. It's not going up higher. It's moving forward. Jonathan, really quick, because we're out of time for this segment. Past, present, and future. Well, you just see, now, you, I could have said that. It would have been easy. <laughs> But no. <laughs> so what we're looking at then is this idea that paradise of heaven and the paradise of earth, we're looking at those two different things and saying that they're, they're attached, but they are different. And we are now talking about governments, and it's really confusing. It can be confusing, but one step at a time. The third heaven and paradise are the same, practically speaking. What did that mean for the thief? As we try to stay on track with research, sometimes you go down unexpected roads. That's part of education, debates, and differing opinions. You just can't take everyone at their word, and oftentimes you have to consider the other side of the story. That's why we're always asking our listeners to give their opinions on the questions we're answering. Message us at ChristianQuestions.com or through the Christian Questions app. Speaking of the other side, time to go in reverse with a CQ contradiction. So, so now that we're trying to put all this in order, let's begin to have a quick and precise summary of what Jesus meant by paradise. And then let's look at its practical application. What would it be like for the thief in paradise? When would he be there? And who else would be there with him? So again, Wes, I just want to step back one more moment here because the idea of the heavens, frankly, it is it can be confusing, and we didn't spend a ton of time on it. There's a whole bunch of scriptural proof that you can go into for a subject like this, and and you know we'll we'll actually need to do a whole po- podcast on this, Jonathan, defining heaven as as being the 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 governance of earth and moving forward from the past to the present to the future. So once again, Wes, the third heaven is not what. It's not a place. It's not going up to the stratosphere. Okay. Uh, it's not taking a road trip somewhere. The third heaven is a government. It's a brand new government. It is a perfect divine government. It is a ruling body. It's Christ's kingdom that he talked about, that he promised, that he said would become a reality. Okay. So that's the difference between the two. It is a governing. And so now, but again, let's go back to paradise because Jesus says, Verily, amen to your request. It is true and it's noble and it's appropriate. I say to you today, on this very day of my crucifixion, this day when paradise opportunity actually is going to be opening up, you will be with me in paradise. Now, we had two versions of paradise. You said in, in Revelation 2.7 it was showing a heavenly paradise, and then we talked about, you said that in 2 Corinthians 12.1-4 was showing an earthly paradise. So really, just to, just to because I know a lot of folks listening are going to think this, how can we be sure that the thief wasn't heading to heaven, to that heavenly paradise, and was heading to the earthly paradise? What, Wes, how can we be sure of that? Well, again, this is where we have to continue to compare spiritual things with spiritual. And we have to ask ourselves, what is what is necessary for a, a Christian to receive a heavenly reward? What is required? Uh, you know, the common thought is that, well, if I, if I go to church at least most of the time uh, and I don't commit too many crimes in my life and so on, I'm kind of a shoe-in for heaven. But when we really dig into the scriptures, Rick, we find that there's a lot more involved. The, the standard 
is very high. And I think we're going to take a look at some scriptures that show us what that standard is. Yeah, and, and we need to do that. We need to, to put it to scripture because these are difficult concepts, especially if you had a, a, a different viewpoint of this particular scripture to begin with. So the heavenly paradise, there's, there are qualifiers for that. Let's start, Jonathan, let's start with Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So, Wes, in terms of explaining uh, that particular verse in Jesus' teaching in relation to our conversation today. Okay, I think in a word, what uh, Jesus is saying here is that it's going to be difficult for any to get to heaven. And he says here at the end of the verse, and few there be that find it. So heaven is not going to be an, an easy accomplishment. You know, he talks about enter ye at the straight gate. Straight means difficult. It's a difficult way uh, to be able to uh, successfully achieve the pathway uh, to heaven. He says straight is the gate and narrow is the way. In other words, this is a difficult climb. Okay, so the first scripture that we're looking at in terms of the paradise of heaven just gives you a sense of this is no easy task. Now let's, let's build on that a little bit. Luke chapter 14, verse 28. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? So Wes, how do you take that and build on what you just talked about? Well, again, uh, one of the things that happens as the true Christian is determining whether or not he wants to sign up, so to speak, uh, for this uh, special uh, calling, this special invitation uh, to receive eventually a heavenly reward is to count the cost of discipleship. In other words, consider what's involved. Consider what kind of time it's going to take. Are you willing to make the commitment? Are you willing to spend the time? Are you willing to do what's required uh, to do the will of God to eventually uh, come off victorious uh, and as a fully developed Christian, ready for a heavenly reward. So you're saying the implication behind these scriptures is that there is a sense of, of serious thoughtfulness in terms of taking the steps to become that true footstep follower of Christ. Absolutely. Okay, so now let's build another step. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. All right, Wes, how does that fit in? Okay, there's a, there's a concept that we learned about uh, largely from the book of Leviticus called consecration. And while that's a word that I don't know is used a lot in the Christian community in our day, uh, it's used many, many times uh, in the Old Testament, particularly in Exodus and Leviticus. But the, a full consecration makes a, means a full unreserved commitment. It requires giving up and agreeing to give up uh, any prospects of an earthly life. It means taking on the will of God. We're no longer doing our own will but only the will of God. And it's a, it's a very serious commitment, and it's a very difficult commitment to actually uh, achieve. But that's what this scripture is talking about when he says, deny yourself, that is to say, give up your humanity, uh, take up your cross. In other words, are you willing to face all the difficulties of a true Christian walk and follow me? In other words, don't follow your own will, but are you willing to follow me, my instruction, and do what I ask you to do, no matter what it costs in terms of, 
emotion or time or energy or whatever. Full consecration. Okay, so now with all of that explanation and those just those three scriptures, and there's loads more on that, what about the thief in relation to these scriptures? Just give us your, your observation of where he was, how, d- does he fit into these scriptures? You know, what, what, what's his situation? Well, first of all, the, the life of the Christian, it really, it is a lifetime of work. It's not something that you're going to do in 10 minutes, or in this case, this was a two-sentence dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> Only two sentences long. Uh, you know, did the criminal make the arduous climb up this narrow way uh, that Jesus uh, talked about? Did he do that in a few minutes? Uh, Romans in, Romans, in Romans chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says he talks about those who seek for glory and honor and immortality. This is something that has to be sought. It's not something that's just going to be handed out, uh, you know, arbitrarily. Did the criminal ever seek it? We don't even know if the criminal even believed in heaven because there was a large segment of the Jewish population back then that didn't even believe in heaven. They didn't believe in any kind of life after death. So, you know, to say that this uh, criminal made this arduous climb in a few minutes, it, it would simply be not correct. It would simply not be true. Okay, and, and, and I think that's an important aspect of this whole conversation is we're looking at a mo- literally a moment in time for that particular thief on, on the cross on his conversation with Jesus. Jonathan, go ahead. And um, he died before Pentecost when the Spirit was given to the apostles, uh, and that should be evidence of those that would re- receive a heavenly reward, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, re- let's go to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 and 17, because that kind of fits in with what you just said. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And that's exactly what you were referring to. New things have come, came by way of God's Spirit uh, at Pentecost. So, Wes, what you're saying is when we look at paradise, the heavenly application, there is a process, a decision, a lifetime of dedication and sacrifice of one's own will, and it can't happen in 10 minutes. No, that's exactly right. Because again, what we're talking about, Rick, uh, in in large measure is really character transformation. Okay. In other words, one has to become uh, after the likeness of Christ in order to be qualified for a heavenly reward. And this qualification, this development uh, that Jonathan just read about, about this idea of the new creature, you know, that takes a lifetime. That's not something that's going to happen. Uh, someone developing the likeness of Christ in their character uh, in two sentences or in a day or in an hour or a week or whatever. It, it's, it's a process. Okay, so, so it's a process and it's something that's important to recognize that the rest of the scriptures teach about the followers of Christ. So let's look at the other side, okay? That's a little bit about heavenly paradise. Well, what about earthly paradise? How do you get there? Because that, what we're saying is that's what the thief was asking for. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says, amen to that. So Jonathan, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, 
that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So, Wes, with this verse and paradise on earth and the thief, tie those all together. Okay, well, I think what we can do, and I think this word reconciliation is really uh, critical, because what we're talking about is a reconciliation between God and man. If we look at the first man, Adam, he was created perfect before he sinned, before he disobeyed. And that's what we're talking about. He was a perfect man. He was perfectly happy upon the earth. And that's what we're talking about here. He was reconciled to God. He had wonderful communication with God. Uh, they had wonderful dialogue. And that's when we talk about reconciliation, it's, it's, it's fine and it's certainly proper and scriptural to have this the idea that there's no more variance, no more enmity, as it were, between God and man. And that can happen between a spirit being and an earthly being, this, this reconciliation that that first talks about. Okay, so the reconciliation, bringing the, the environment between God and man back together. You know, and when and the scripture says that Jesus came to save that which was lost, what was lost was the harmony of man on earth with God in heaven. That's what you're saying. Yeah, and just to add to that, Rick, Adam wasn't created a spirit being. Right. He was created an earthly being. Right. And so when we're talking about reestablishing or restoring that, that's the relationship we're talking about restoring. So That's what Christ's kingdom is going to do. That's what the third heaven is going to do. So now picture this then. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he is dying. And when this thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom— I mean, that's the very reason he was dying, to restore that which was lost, to buy back uh, the, the sins of Adam, essentially, and to put mankind back in harmony with God. So essentially, Paradise West then can actually kind of be a state of being in harmony with God, whether on earth or in heaven. Absolutely, either one. So the thief is lined up, therefore, for this paradise on earth, harmony with God, because Jesus paid the price right there that very day that the thief was talking to Jesus. Exactly. And to add to that, again, just maybe it might be a little bit redundant, but to add to that, the fact is that the thief clearly, under no circumstances, qualified for a heavenly reward. He simply didn't meet the qualifications but he didn't lose out on an incredible opportunity as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus. Not at all. Okay. No, he, no he, he fully qualified for the participation and the experience of a heavenly paradise, a, a return to earth. Okay. All right. So let's read one more verse that describes this reconciliation process. And then, Wes, we're going to give you about two minutes to, to wrap up. So, Jonathan, Isaiah 35, verses 8 through 10. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ravenous beast go on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads." They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So, Wes, this is another Old Testament prophecy that puts us uh, in, in a place where we can look forward to, essentially, to that third heaven that you were talking about. So, 
we're looking at a reward because of Jesus' sacrifice, and that's what this conversation was about. So we've got about two minutes for you, Wes. Sum up this whole thing, the conversation, and what was meant, and the implications. Okay, well, I think we kind of start back with the basics. The Bible is the revealed mind of God. It was not written like a novel. We can't read it like a novel if we want to understand it. If we want to understand God's revealed mind, we have to study his book, his way. In his way, the Apostle Paul tells us, is that we have to compare spiritual things with spiritual, particularly on these more difficult texts uh, that are, uh, you know, hard to understand. The thief did not ask Jesus to take him to heaven. The thief didn't say a thing about heaven. Uh, He simply asked for this unspecified favor in the future uh, when Jesus would establish his kingdom. And Jesus agreed. He agreed wholeheartedly to grant that favor, that favor on the earth, because this thief clearly did not uh, qualify for all the things that Jesus described during his ministry about how difficult it was for one to reach a heavenly reward. Uh, This thief clearly didn't qualify for that, but he did qualify for this future favor, this future paradise on earth. So, I think that's really kind of the sum and substance of kind of where this text leaves us, Rick. So, again, what we have is the thief asks Jesus a simple question. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, amen, verily. He says to him, I have heard you. I agree with you. Your request is true and appropriate. And he says, today, this day, This day of my crucifixion, which looks like such a dark and terrible day, this day is the beginning of everything because I am paying the price so you can have paradise on earth. Wes, thanks so much for being with us. This has been a real tremendous journey. We appreciate all your efforts and your commentary. Thanks, Rick, and thanks, Jonathan. Again, appreciate the privilege of being a little participant here in in a wonderful discussion and a beautiful topic. Folks, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. We certainly have enjoyed being with you. And remember, suggest topics to us. Start a conversation with us at ChristianQuestions.com. Make sure to download our app, search Christian Questions in your App Store, and we look forward to bringing you another subject next week. But until then, for Jonathan, Rick, and Wes, did Jesus and Thief go from the cross to paradise? No, but something much greater and much more significant happened instead. Till next week, think about it.